0: Before I start, let me state something that I said last Sunday when I started that I'm trying to teach this book from an orthodox preterist viewpoint, which is a very minority viewpoint amongst the body of Christ. And so it has the tendency or the possibility that it might get some people upset if you don't hold that particular view. I am not trying to attack any person, only a viewpoint, okay, or not trying to establish anything except what the scripture says. So please don't take offense to anything I say, you know, we don't want that to happen. And the next thing I need to do is remind you of the three basic themes of Revelation. Theme number one, the old Jerusalem is wiped out in the book and the new Jerusalem is established. The old Jerusalem is the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the people who killed Jesus and persecuted the apostles. That's the old Jerusalem, apostate Jerusalem. The whole book of Revelation is about the destruction of that Jerusalem and the establishment of the new Jerusalem, which is the new covenant church. That's theme number one. Theme number two is that there were two geopolitical entities who attacked the Church of Christ. The same two geopolitical entities that killed Jesus. That's the Roman Empire and apostate old Jerusalem. The rebellious Jews, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees who killed Jesus. So that's theme number two. Theme number three is the theme I'm going to emphasize in chapter five, which is that Jesus has a kingdom. He got that kingdom from the Father, and he's going to bequeath that kingdom to the church. So there is a dominion and a kingdom. All right, so let's start in verse 1. This is John speaking. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book, or a scroll, depending on your translation, written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now, who is the one who sat on the throne from chapter 4? God the Father. Yeah, that, we know that from chapter 4. God's sitting on the throne, and what does the right hand symbolize of any king who's sitting on this throne? What's the right hand symbolized in China as well as in the West is power. Yeah, power and authority. So this is God in his right hand. He had a scroll. I'm going to use scroll because that's what they used back then for books. Rolled up like this. And this scroll had a particular feature. It was written inside and on the back. Now, John is getting this revelation in heaven. He's seeing this in his head, okay? Now he's got to write it down. When John writes down his revelation, he goes to the Old Testament and uses all kinds of Old Testament scriptures to describe what he saw in heaven. Now there's a continuity between what's in heaven and what the Old Testament prophets saw, and a continuity a continuity between that and what the New Testament prophets like John saw and what he saw in heaven. So that's why we can go to the Old Testament and interpret the book of Revelation. And we need to, because John doesn't interpret all of his symbols. So let's go to Ezekiel 2, 8 through 10. This is Ezekiel speaking here. He says, but you, son of man. Now, son of man is a messianic title. Jesus used it of himself in the New Testament all the time. Only one other person did. That was Stephen when he was getting stoned. But Jesus always used that term. It comes from Daniel. It means uh, Jesus, the Messiah, But you, son of man, hear what I say to you. Be not rebellious like the rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I give you. The eating was to show that it was part of the prophet. It was in his very being, the judgment that was going to come. And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. See how similar that is to God on the throne stretching his hand out with a scroll? Likewise, Ezekiel saw the same thing. A hand was stretched out, and I'm assuming that's the hand of God. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on the front and on the back, and which is just like the scroll that Jesus is going to take from God the Father in Revelation 5. And there were written on it words of lamentation and mourning and woe. Judgment was all over this scroll. Judgment for the rebellious house of Israel. And we're going to see when this scroll is opened. we're going to see judgment on the old Jerusalem. We're going to see seven seals. We're going to see the seventh seal will become seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet will become seven bowls, and it's judgment, judgment, judgment. Okay? Now, seven seals. Wills back then, as far as I know, didn't have seven seals. The number seven is symbolic, and we've talked about this a lot before. What does seven stand for? Divine. Yeah, you got it. It's, I, that's a good way. To, I just say divine. It means divine perfection, but let's just say divine. So it's seven seals that are divinely perfect. That thing is divinely perfectly sealed up. Now, the question is, is what is the scroll? Now, scholars disagree on what the scroll is, but a lot of them agree with what I think it is, which it's a will. Okay? a will and a testament, because wills were sealed up with scrolls back then. And a will is what a testator, a person who is about to die, is going to die. He has an estate, and he's going to transfer that estate to his, um, benefact- not his, his beneficiaries. He's going to transfer the estate to his beneficiaries. I'm going to say that this scroll is God going to transfer his kingdom from God the Father to God the Son, and then Jesus, the Lamb, who's going to open up the scroll, he's going to say, okay, here's the kingdom, and the kingdom is going to the church. And the first question you might have is, yeah, but the scroll is full of judgment. Well, that's true, because in order for Jesus to establish the new covenant, the old Jerusalem has to be wiped out first. Because after Jesus died for about one generation, you read the Olivet Discourse, there's nothing but trouble, famine, earthquakes, plagues, and persecution. Jesus talked about persecution. He said they will persecute you from synagogue to synagogue. He's talking about apostate Jerusalem. So in order for Jesus to take his kingdom and inherit it, he's got to wipe out the bad guys before he can transfer the kingdom to the church. Now, let's look at Hebrews 9, verses 16 and 17. Where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established. Now, that's common sense. In fact, that's true in every legal system for thousands of years. It's true in today's legal system. Somebody's got to die before the will's any good. I used to do wills when I practiced law, and that piece of paper was worthless. Made that nice will. You put it in a file drawer. It's worthless until the person who signs the will dies. It's still worthless. What do you have to do after that? You have to take the will to the county courthouse, go to the probate judge, and say, Judge this is a will, I want to make it legal. And the judge says, let me see your witnesses. And I've done this before too. When you, you go to the judge and you take the first witness and you say, Judge, I saw the testator, the person dying. I saw him sign that and that, that will and this is his signature and I will attest to it. And I have to sign a piece of paper. Then the second witness does the same thing. So these witnesses are like seals. They prove the will. Okay. So just like then, they got seals back then. The witness says, okay, here. They couldn't write so well back then. They got a stamp, a seal, and they sealed it on the will. and said, this is my seal. I saw the testator inside this will. I saw him sign it. This is his will. It's true, okay? Now, I don't think they had seven seals back then. In the Roman Empire, I think the seven is symbolic. But they did have seals. Yes, sir? Uh, I just wanted to add that the seals back then were also proof that it hadn't been tampered with. Yes, That's right. The seal is to attest that this will has not been changed. It's it's the actual will of the testator. Let's continue in Hebrews 9 verse 17. For a will is valid only when people die since it is never in effect while the one who made it is living. As I just said, even today that's true. But now we've got a problem here. If this is a will being handed to Jesus and if it's Jesus' will how can he prove his own will? Because, you know, if I have a will and I pass my stuff down to my kids, I can't go into the courthouse and say, yeah, these my signatures valid because I'm a dead man. I'm gone. But Jesus is a little bit unique. Why is Jesus unique? He died, but he rose again from the dead. So here he's going to be proving his own will in chapter 5. So we go to verse 2. And I, that's John, saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And again, that book there is scroll in different translations. Uh, the strong angel, I, just, I used to worry about who these angels were. They're just part of the tableau. They're part of the scenery. They just make it dramatic and holy and wonderful, okay? It doesn't matter who he is. And now he's saying, who is worthy? What does worthy mean? Worthy means who's qualified, who can open this book, And break its seals. We go to verse 3 and 4. And no one in heaven or on earth, under the earth, was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Now, this is a Jewish expression here. Heaven and earth, in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, on the sea, and in the sea. So every time we see that we just think this. In heaven, what flies in heaven? Birds. Birds. On the earth, cows, dogs, and cats. Under the earth, worms, moles. Uh, on the sea, porpoise, porpoises. Under the sea, fish. Okay, in other words, everything, every created thing. That's just the Hebrew way of saying that. And so nobody could open the book, and that, of course, includes human beings. And then John began to weep. Now, why was John weeping? He, he knew that something was important in that scroll. Now he didn't know what it was yet, but he knew it was something important. And scholars—this is speculation—scholars speculated that he might have had an intimation that there's something bad going to happen. And as you open up the scrolls, there, there's a lot of bad stuff happening on the Jewish kingdom. Remember, John is Jewish, and he was Christian too. So you can't have but a, if you were Jewish, you would have a little bit of pain about watching your city get burnt down in 80, 70 in just a few years. You know, you'd have some pain about that. Just like you're America. You watch America die in front of your eyes, like we're watching now, in my humble opinion. It's painful. It could be that, or it could be John has got a hint that when he sees the Lamb going up there, uh, that he is um, thinking, well, you know, something good's about to happen. You know, maybe the new kingdom, the new covenant's coming. I don't know. That's all speculation. But in any way, uh, he knew, John knew that nobody could open those seals, and he wanted to look into it very badly and couldn't do it. Now we go to Revelation 5, 5. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open this look and its seven seals. Now who are these elders? In chapter 4, remember, you got, let's say this is the throne room of God. You got the four living creatures, front, back, and center. They stands for all of creation. And then we got the 24 elders all the way around. And I said, and people, again, debate this, but some scholars, and I agree with them, say that the, 12, the 24 elders stands for the people of God, both Old and New Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel, 12 plus 12 apostles, that makes 24. And their elders, and we're going to see later, they're praising, they have crowns. So it fits the people of God very well, the, the rulers of the, new, of the uh, church of God very well there. So that's one of the elders that's being talked about here. And that elder says, stop weeping, John, because we've got some good news coming. The lion that is from the tribe of Judah. Now, in chapter 5, Jesus is compared to a lion and a lamb. Those are two different animals. Uh, (laughs) In fact, somebody, somebody once said that in order for Jesus to be a lion, he had to be the lamb first. He had to be killed, sacrificed before he could be a lion. Well, when we see lion, what do we think about when we see a lion? What does that symbolize? Say it again. Yeah, King, Majesty King. He's ferocious, wild, t- terrifying. Okay, so that's what Jesus is. He's very powerful. He's not weak. He's from the tribe of Judah. A tribe of Judah. Now, there were twelve tribes of Israel. Jacob was the father of the of of his sons who were patriarchs of those twelve tribes. And in Genesis chapter forty-nine, a very famous chapter. Jacob is about to die, and he's passing on his legacy to his twelve children, the twelve tribes. And as he does that, he prophesies. Okay, now here is Jacob's prophecy in Genesis forty-nine, nine and, verses nine and ten. Judah is a lion's cub. Um, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion as a lion. It's not what that means is the lion is eating a deer or something. He looks up. He's you know, got the food all over his mouth. He's, ch- he's, he's the king. He's the king of the jungle. He crouched as a lion. This is when lions crouch and they get ready to attack somebody. You know how cats do. Lions do the same thing. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Now, this is a very famous prophecy which we should know even if we're not studying the book of Revelation. What is a scepter? If I'm a king and I'm sitting down here, a scepter was an iron rod. And, of course, it was fancy, a fancy iron rod. And the, and the king would hold it and he put it right there. I'm the king. You've probably seen movies and pictures of that. And so the scepter, which is a symbol of a kingly authority, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. So there's a prophecy that says that the kingship of Israel, in this case, old Israel, will always be in the tribe of Judah, okay? Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. This is a prophecy of the Messiah coming because Jesus was also in the tribe of Judah, was he not? So Judah the tribe was like a lion, and Jesus is like a lion. So the imagery fits there pretty good. Now, the next thing that happens, the next thing that John says is that this lion from the tribe of Judah, that's Jesus... He is the root of David. Now, that's an interesting expression, which is not so easy to interpret at first. Let's look at Isaiah 11.1, 1, and we'll see there that Isaiah says that Jesus is the shoot of David. Then a shoot will grow from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now, we've got to go back and look at the history of the tribe of Judah. You remember Jesse, right, in the Old Testament? Who was Jesse? David's father. David's father. But anyway, it goes from Jesse to David, dot, 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 all the way down. And then we get, and David was around um, 900, late, uh, early 10th century B.C., 900 and something B.C., and we go all the way down, and what happened in 586 to the ruling dynasty of David in Israel? What happened in 586 B.C.? Babylonians came in and wiped the place out. Wiped Jerusalem out in Babylonian captivity. Now, so it looks like the, tri- the dynasty of David is finished, right? It's like you have a tree. You chop the tree down. It looked like the dynasty of David had his tree chop down, chopped down. What's left? A stump. Now, have you ever cho- I live in the country and I've seen this. You chop trees down, and what happens the next year? The little shoots are going out. You just can't kill a stump. You have got to buy chemicals, borers. You've got to get tractors. You've got to dig up the root. Stumps do not die, they're, they're indestructible. Jesse's family, David's family from the tribe of Judah, it was indestructible because a shoot will grow out. Well, who was the shoot? Because 586 BC, you go 500, roughly 586 years later, Jesus is the shoot. He reestablishes the kingdom of David, and Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in the Messiah, okay? Well, that's Jesus as a shoot growing out from the stump of David. David comes first, his dynasty's cut down, Jesus is born in that dynasty and takes back over the kingdom. But now John in the book of Revelation says that Jesus that David that Jesus is the root of David. How can and root means that which comes first and establishes, right? The root is under the stump, the shoot is on top of the stump. How can we reconcile those two seemingly contradictory things? Ed. And that's the perfect answer, and I did not prep him on this. That's, that's exactly right. You look at it from heaven, Jesus created David. He made David. You look at it from the incarnate, Jesus' view, Jesus was the descendant of David. And that's how he can be a root and a shoot at the same time. Yes, sir. We go now to verse 6, Revelation 5. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. All right, so let's look at the throne again. Remember, we got the throne here. we got the four living creatures on each side. In Revelation 4, we said that those creatures stand for all the created world, the natural world. And then the 24 elders around. And then in front, right here, is the Lamb standing as if slain. Okay? And the elders are around. That's the picture. Now, the next question is, we just said that, Jesus was a lion in the previous verse. Now he's a lamb. How can he be a lion and a lamb at the same time? What does the imagery of a lamb mean to you? Weak, weak. Okay. This is exactly how I always looked at this before. Because whenever we think of lamb, lambs, we think of weak, gentle, quiet, <laughs> submissive, gentle. But that's not the, the imagery we have here, because Jesus was just said to be a lion, not, a, not weak and gentle. This And plus, we look at this, what is this slain thing here? Yes, Jesus is a sacrifice. So I think the imagery refers to Jesus as a sacrificial lamb, not a weak and gentle, humble lamb, which he is. Of course, Jesus is very gentle. But what John is aiming at here, I believe, is that Jesus is a sacrificial lamb, because he was slain. Now, I don't know how John saw this, but he saw this lamb. He probably saw blood running down the white wool. Now, the interesting thing about this dead lamb is he was standing up. you ever seen a dead animal stand up? <laughs> Highly unlikely. But this is a vision. Now, remember, this is, the laws of physics do not apply in this vision. I mean, after all, the lamb's going to have seven horns in just a minute, and the lambs don't have seven horns, all right? Well, how can a slain lamb st- what is the symbolism of a slain lamb standing up resurrection. resurrection that's right jesus was killed but then but now he's alive now he had seven we all know that, what seven means 777 seven, seven. that's divine horns if you're a bullfighter and you're fighting the bull and the and you make a mistake and the bull gores you where does What does the bull use to apply his strength to your corpse? The horns, right? The horns is where the strength of an animal is. And this is a very common symbol, not just in Revelation, it's all through the Old Testament. So that's easy. So this lamb has seven horns, which is the opposite of weak and gentle lamb imagery. Okay, So he's strong. What's the word that we use to describe God's complete and divine strength? The fancy omnipotent, right. So if God is omnipotent, Jesus has seven horns, he is divinely strong, he is omnipotent. This, ties, this This shows that Jesus is God. He's not just a created God, he is God himself. Different person, but same nature, okay? Divine nature. And uh, the Lamb had seven eyes. Now here John explains what seven eyes means, which is nice, because he doesn't do that a lot. Seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Seven stands for divine, spirit. The divine spirit. So what's the divine spirit? Holy Spirit, right. So we have seven eyes of the the lamb. Eyes do what? They see, right? When you see something, you understand something, right? So the lamb sees with perfect divine understanding. What's the big word we use for God when we say he knows everything? Omniscience. Omniscience. Jesus is omniscient also. He has seven eyes. Now those seven eyes are, are, are said to be the seven spirits of God, the Holy Spirit. So his seven eyes, which are omniscient, they not only see everything in the world, they go out into all the world because it says the Holy Spirit is sent out into all the earth. So that means all over the earth the Holy Spirit is present. Okay, What's the big word we use to describe God in the sense that he is present anywhere in the world? What's that word? And so we see that Jesus is omnipresent too. Jesus is God. So this is a powerful Jesus that we're looking at here in this vision. Now, where does the language come? The Holy Spirit is sent out into all the earth. In fact, the seven eyes of the Lord are sent out into all the earth. Zechariah 4, 8 through 10, second part of the verse. These seven eyes of the Lord, that's the Holy Spirit, which scan throughout the whole earth, sent out into the whole earth, will rejoice when they see the ceremonial stone in Zerubbabel's hand. That's talking about the second temple being established. So, you see, once again, what's the book in the New Testament that quotes the Old Testament over in any other book? book of Revelation. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, you better know the Old Testament. What book of the Bible, what testament of the Bible do Christians know the least of? The Old Testament. That might have something to do with why we can't understand the book of Revelation. now, this idea of the Holy Spirit going out into all the earth. What does the Holy Spirit do when He goes out into all the earth? The Holy Spirit convicts of sin. right, convicts of sin and righteousness. And so that the idea here is there's going to be a kingdom, a dominion. Theme number three: dominion. Holy Spirit's going to go out into all the world. Now I'm going to jump ahead here to Revelation 21:25. This is talking about the New Jerusalem, which is a perfect cube like that. It has three gates on each side of the four side. And those gates, the gates of it, the new Jerusalem, shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. You know, most ancient cities at nighttime, they shut the gates to keep the criminals out. Well, not going to any nighttime. This is symbolic in the new Jerusalem because there's going to be salvation everywhere. The gates are open. Now, what is that a symbol of open gates to the kingdom? That means people from all over the earth, every tribe, people and tongue and nation can, can just stream right into the kingdom of God. And so, that's the idea here. The kingdom of God is about to be established. The Holy Spirit is going out all into the earth. It's going to be available. Revelation 21 just establishes or helps uh, buttress that theme. All right, let's go now to Revelation 5, verse 7. And He, that's the Lamb, Jesus, came, I emphasize came there. He came and took the book or the scroll out of the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. Who sits on the throne? God the Father. In his right hand, we have that scroll. The Lamb came. I don't know how the Lamb did this in the vision. Maybe he did it with his teeth. I don't know. But he got got the scroll. He got the scroll. Now, I said last Sunday, if there's one thing, if you want to know prophecy and eschatology, you have to know Daniel 7, 13, and 14, up, down, sideways, left, and right. Memorize it. Meditate on it. Learn it in about 10 or 15 translations and go to the original Hebrew and learn it that way. I mean, you really need to know Daniel 7, 13, and 14. If you can't do that, you can at least get a general idea of it, because I'm going to mention this verse a lot. This is is Daniel's talking about what he saw in his vision. With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Son of man refers to Jesus, that's his title. So we know it's Jesus coming, somewhere coming, He's coming with the clouds of heaven. And last Sunday, I pointed out to you all throughout the Old Testament, when you see clouds, you don't see these little puffy cotton ball clouds. You, don't, you think thunderous black thunder that go 50,000 feet up in the air and it's full of lightning, tornadoes, and wind shear. Okay? Judgment. So Jesus is coming with judgment, and He came to the Ancient of Days. That's a, another way of saying God the Father. Where is God the Father Is Jesus is coming to Him? Is He on earth or is He in heaven? He's in heaven. So when the Son of Man comes with judgment, He's not coming down. In Matthew 24, it says, Jesus will come on the clouds. And everybody says, Oh, that's Jesus coming to the earth, coming on the clouds. Well, here, where the whole expression came from, Jesus is not coming to the earth. He's going up to God the Father. And He's going up with judgment. But then, what happens? What does God the Father give Jesus? Verse 14, And to Him was given Dominion and glory in a kingdom. Dominion is just another word for kingdom. Rule. Dominion and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages shall serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom. One that shall not be destroyed. In that one little verse, five times, a kingdom is established. So, Jesus went up to the Ancient of Days to do what? To get a kingdom. He came to to God the Father to get a kingdom. What's he doing in Revelation 5? He is the Lamb. He is going up to the one who sits on the throne. He's going up to God the Father to get a kingdom. So that's what this scroll is. It's a testament, a will, where Jesus says, okay, I'm going to bequeath to myself a kingdom, and then I'm going to give it to the church of God. That's the idea there. And this kingdom will not be destroyed. It's an everlasting kingdom. It's the church. It's the new covenant. It's the new Jerusalem. It's the new heavens and the new earth. Okay We go to Revelation 5:8, and when he had taken the scroll, that's the lamb, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp. and I'm assuming that each there beats each elder, not the creatures, because creatures usually don't play harps, OK? So we're going to assume that's the, uh, the leaders of the Old and New covenant, each holding a harp. What are harps used for? praise right and golden bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints ah another metaphor that john explains for us the incense let's take that since that's the easiest if you take a bowl it's usually a golden bowl and you put incense in it and you light it what happens smoke goes up is that not a perfect symbol of the prayers of the saints especially when you go back to the old testament and you look in the tabernacle and you got remember the 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 holy of holies you got the 10 by 10 by 10 by 10 holy, most holy place where God the Father lives in the Ark of the Covenant. And then right there's a curtain right here that goes into the holy place. And right at that curtain, right at the doorway, there was a golden altar of incense. The priest would burn that incense. The smoke would go up, and it would go right through the door, and it would go into the place where God lives. So the idea is the incense is prayers that go up to the throne room of God. And how often did that incense burn? It burned all the time. This is a common theme, a common metaphor in the Old Testament. Psalm 141.2, let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense. In the New Testament, Luke 1.10, and the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. There was a daily ritual that, that was set up. And, and all the people would pray and the incense would be going up at the same time they were praying. Okay, so that's easy. The harp is easy. Notice in this vision that we've got, what's God experiencing speaking anthropomorphically God is not a man of course but he is smelling something and he's hearing something he's hearing praises from the harp and he's smelling the beautiful aroma of the incense so in every possible way God is receiving this remember of course God is not a man sitting on a throne this is just how God pictured himself to John in the vision we go to verse 9 whoops And they, that's the uh, elders, 24 elders representing the people of God, sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now, it's the new covenant that's being established here, so a new covenant needs a new song. Now, I'm going to do two things here. First of all, I'm going to read you six verses from the Old Testament. And I want you to, I'm going to, we're going to see that phrase, new song. And we're going to see that in most of these places, scriptures, that God has done something. He does something in order for the new song to be sung. Let's do that first. Psalm 33, 3. Sing unto him a new song. Play skillfully with a loud voice. Verse 4. All His works are done in truth. All the things that God does. So sing unto Him a new song. Verse 5. Many, O Lord, my God, are thy wonderful works which thou hast done. When God does something, there's a new song sung. Psalm 40, verse 3. And He hath put a new song in my mouth, even praising unto our God. Psalm 96, one, O sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Verse 2, sing unto the Lord, bless His name, show forth His salvation from day to day. So we have a new song associated with God's salvation. Psalm 144, 9, I will sing a new song unto thee. Next verse, verse 10, it is He that gives salvation unto kings. So the new song is associated with salvation. And the idea is, we go back to the Old Testament, we see new songs are associated with the work of God, salvation. Likewise here. The elders are singing a new song because they see that salvation is coming. It's the new covenant. Uh, Psalm 149, 1, praise ye the Lord, sing unto the Lord a new song. Next verse in Psalm 149, let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Israel was made, they used to be slaves in Egypt, now they were made into a kingdom after after the Exodus. Isaiah 42, 10, sing unto the Lord a new song and his praise from the end of the earth. The previous verse, Isaiah 42, 9, says, Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare before they spring forth. New things are about to happen. So, new songs is identified with the new covenant. Now, I'm going to do a little exercise here. I want you to give me examples of how new is used in the New Testament. Well, like right here, we got new song. That's number one. I got nine other ones. New song, new, new what? Jerusalem. New creation, new Jerusalem, new covenant. New covenant. New what? New heavens. new heavens and new earth. Five. What's else? New creation. Said new, man also. new man. Got three more. I might have to cheat here. <laughs> How about the new birth? New birth. Yeah. New name. new name. That's number nine. New, new wine is number 10. Very good. All right. So the idea here is the book of Revelation is about a new covenant, folks, and a new song. It's not about nuclear bombs going off and plagues and famine, although that is, will be involved here in the next couple of chapters. Now, notice that the Lamb is worthy, that means qualified, to open the seals, in other words, to establish the new covenant. Why? Because you were slain, and the blood from the slaying of Jesus ransomed people for God or purchased people for God, some translations have. You know, if somebody's a slave in the old covenant, how did you get them out of slavery? You went and you paid money to the slave owner, right? And then the slave was free. That's the imagery. How did Jesus ransom us, the people of God? How does he ransom us? With his blood. That's the price. Uh-huh, and, what, and who were we enslaved to? No, we're still slaves to God. We had not been bought out of that yet. We're still slaves to God, but we we're slaves to sin, right. Okay, now... So this is basic gospel message here in five nine. That's why that's one more piece of evidence that this is talking about the new covenant. Now these people that are ransomed, uh, ransomed from sin come from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's standard New Testament language for every people group on the earth. Okay, think about it. Can you think of a place on earth now where there's not a Christian? It's real hard. You can go to the far western. I've been to the far western boundary of China. There's Christians out there. In fact, there's a lot of them. Minority group members out in the west of China. You can't name a place. They're everywhere. Now, I know that Wycliffe will tell you there's some places that are still unevangelized, but they're very few. So, was this, what shall we call it a prophecy, this new song that says that people are going to be ransomed from every tribe and language and people and nation, did it come to pass? It's one of the greatest apologetic, what can I say? Uh, tools to point out to people, hey, the church is everywhere. And it was predicted. They started out with 12 little measly apostles who couldn't read half of them, and they were sinful and screwed up, and they were persecuted miserably, and that is over a billion of us. How do you explain that one? It's because the Holy Spirit doing this. Now again, I told you Daniel 7.14 was important. Let's read it again. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples, nations, and languages. See, this kingdom is very similar to here. Peoples, nations, and languages. This is where John got that language from. shall serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed from every tribe and language and people and nation. That does not mean, of course, that everybody is saved. It means people from those tribes and nations will be saved. Let's go to Revelation 5.10. This is the elder speaking to the Lamb, now to Jesus, and you, Jesus. You have made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. Now there's the third theme, dominion. We are going to reign on the earth, folks, not just God the Father, not just God the Son, but we are going to share in that reign with Jesus Christ. This book is a book of dominion. It is a book of victory. Orthodox preterist eschatology is an eschatology of victory, not of defeat, not of we got to get jerked out of the world because the church is incapable of dealing with the persecution in a pre-trib rapture. That's not what this chapter 5 is talking about. It's talking about we are going to rule. We are going to overcome. We are going to conquer, just like Jesus the Lamb conquered. This idea of being a nation of kings and priests comes right from Exodus and you shall be to me, this is God speaking you should, it, speaking to Israel, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's the old covenant. And of course all that Jewish stuff was a type of the new covenant. And now we are kings and priests. We know this familiar scripture, First Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. There's kings and priests. Say the elders, we are a priesthood, says Peter. A holy nation, which is the same thing as a kingdom a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we're a kingdom. Now this idea was mentioned in Revelation 3.21, to the one who conquers, that's us, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Greg read this book verse this morning, that was very convenient. Our dominion is now, Ephesians 2, 5, and 6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he, God, made us alive together with Christ, By grace, you have been saved, and raised us with with Him. God raised us, Christians, up with Jesus and seated us with Jesus in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, are we seated on the throne now? Yes, we are. Ephesians 2 says it beyond any cavil or dispute. We are seated with God and Christ on the throne. That means we rule. This is a picture of a triumphant church. It is not a picture of a church hunkered down, hiding under the rocks, waiting for the nuclear fallout to blow away. It just isn't. Our dominion is now. Now, Revelation 5.11, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. We've already got the elders praising God was the harps. And with their mouths singing songs, we got the four elders praising God with their mouths. And now we've got all the angels in the sky. So the, the tableau, if you will, the scene is totally finished. Everybody and everything is praising God the Father. God demands praise. He doesn't just want it. He just doesn't like it. He does. He demands it. We're supposed to praise Him. The person, the most moral person you ever saw in Atlanta, if he's not praising God, he's sinning. I don't care if he doesn't drink, smoke, chew, or run with those who do. I don't care. If he's not praising God, he's sinning. God demands praise, and all of uh, creation is giving him praise. Verse 12. And all these angels are saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power. Worthy is the Lamb." that means he's qualified. We've already got the elders saying he was worthy. Now we've got the angels saying that Jesus is worthy. And what is he going to receive when he opens up that scroll? In the new covenant kingdom, he's going to receive riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's the new covenant, and he's going to take that he's going to give it to you. What the angels are doing, they're answering the question that was asked in verse 2. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll, scroll and break its seals? There's the answer right there. We go to verse 13. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea... And all things in them I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne, that's God, and to the Lamb, be blessing and glory and honor. And there's that word again, dominion. Now who's going to get dominion here in this verse? Two persons of the Trinity, let's put it that way. To him who sits on the throne, that's God. And to the Lamb, that's Jesus. Be blessing and honor and glory and dominion. So God the Father... And God the Son have dominion, have a kingdom, and so do we. I just finished saying that we are part of that kingdom. And the four living creatures kept saying amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. Now, that's my last verse, and I'm finished, but I want to go back and pick up one thing that I failed to mention here when we talked about rain. I I, I skipped this by mistake. It says, We shall reign on the earth. Where shall we reign? Does it say do we reign in heaven or do we reign in earth? Futurists tend to take the reign. Now it's true we reign both places but futurists tend to emphasize the reign in heaven at the end. But Jesus taught us to pray and I want you to fill in the blank. Thy kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy kingdom come, your dominion come on earth. Here we reign on the earth. Now let me make an application here and then we'll be finished. We are going to reign in the midst of persecution. Remember, all this book, all this victory I've been talking about in chapter five, it was written to, to churches that were suffering terrible persecution. Do you think that the church in America is going to suffer persecution in the next several years? Yes. Yeah, I think everybody's handwriting's on the wall, right? Yeah, it's coming. Should we sit here and start start reading Hal Lindsey and Tim LaHaye and say, well, that's okay, we're going to get jerked out of it, we won't suffer it? Or should, we, or should we say, hey, I don't care if the persecution is coming, I am in a kingdom that's going to last forever and ever. That kingdom was given from God the Father to God the Son, and Jesus made me a part of that kingdom, and we rule and we reign with Him, and I'm just going to have to live with the persecution, but I am going to conquer through it. This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.